0: This is Birth Allowed Radio, where we challenge the status quo around that most basic human right, how, where, and with whom we are allowed to give birth. I'm your host, Kristen Piscucci. On Birth Allowed Radio, we have a really special guest, and this is someone I'm, I'm really excited to talk about, and I think you'll realize why very quickly. We have Marissa Hochstetter with us. She is a patient's rights and criminal justice reform advocate. As a survivor of sexual assault by her OBGYN while she was pregnant, Marissa shares her experience publicly in order to bring attention to sexual assault by medical professionals and the need for criminal justice reform in supporting survivors of sex crimes, in particular those by serial criminals. Marissa is a member of the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network's Speakers Bureau and the Medical Board Roundtable. She is a senior advancement and communications professional for nonprofit organizations. Marissa lives with her family in Massachusetts. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely thank you for coming on. I was really excited to connect with you. When I read your story in the news, I thought, wow, I see a lot of parallels to some of the work that I do. And what you've done is extremely brave and takes a lot of nerve and a lot of stamina in coming forward with a story like this. So just to recap for people who um, haven't heard about this situation yet. Robert Haddon is or was an OBGYN in New York State who was accused by several women of sexual misconduct, or several patients of his by sexual misconduct. Um, There was a criminal trial, I think that ended in 2016, And you were one of the people involved in that trial. But as it turned out, there was a plea deal kind of at the last minute. And he only pled guilty to two of the charges. And they were, you know, relatively minor, pled down to be relatively minor. So he ended up getting off, losing his license, but not serving any jail time and not having any, you know, real criminal consequences, like what we think of when someone sexually violates Another person or multiple people in this case. And so then from what I understand, you were okay with what happened with the outcome of that criminal investigation or trial. And then a couple years later, you realized that maybe that outcome wasn't as good as it could have been. Can you talk about that just a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, All told, there were 19 women who came forward to the Manhattan District Attorney about Dr. Haddon. I was one uh, who came forward. At the time, when I started researching statutes of limitation, and you know, what were my rights? And what exactly like, how do you define the crimes against me? I was aware that I was In a really small group of people who actually even see their perpetrator uh, indicted on charges or um, potentially even you know to go to trial and have punishment and so the fact that I got to sit in a courtroom and watch this person plead guilty and be sentenced was at the time a sort of immediate relief I felt in a way that that was, I knew that was kind of rare. And at the time, I think I also didn't really have an extent, a sense of the extent of his crime. So I knew what had happened to me, but uh, all the other women were anonymous. And I left hearing the details of the plea and thinking, God, you know, he really should have gone to jail. And in fact, I was lied to about what charges could have been based on the crimes against me, um, the statute of limitation and things like that. And a lot has been made about how the district attorney handled the case. And I don't think, you know, we don't need to go into that today, but I left the courtroom, I think, with a little bit of a sense of relief, but also another part of me opened up to so many more questions because once I allowed myself to really start thinking, fully about everything that had happened to me I realized that I felt differently about it than even I knew and so it took me several years from uh, when I knew I was assaulted in 2012 to when I came forward to the Manhattan District Attorney and that was a you know a process in being able to even do that in 2015 and then from 2015 forward It was kind of like once I opened up my mind to it, I had all these other feelings about it. And through therapy and talking with friends and family and other people, I allowed myself, if that's a way to describe it, to actually acknowledge what had happened to me and to think about how to address it. And so very quickly, I felt very differently about it than I had before. It was sort of like I had to give myself permission to even admit that it had happened, admit that I hadn't said something at the time it happened, um, and think about, you know, all of those issues. And that takes time. That takes time when you're raising kids and working and doing everything else in your life and, you know, trying to keep it together. And so, yeah, there was an immediate sense of relief hearing someone say they were guilty to crimes, even if they weren't the crimes against you. Uh, But then very quickly, I it led to other, other feelings that I've now been working really hard to address and inform others about.
0: I mean, that's a really typical survivor response is walling it off as best you can. And then, you know, maybe you find that you're able to take that wall down a little bit at a time as you can handle feeling what you're feeling really. It does seem like it's a lot easier, I think, to yeah, and compartmentalize I- it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. And I've been really fortunate that each time I have stepped out a little bit further with my story. So telling my husband, telling my friends, telling the story publicly, I've been really, it's been okay. I've been met with great empathy and an incredible response from people, other victims of the same person, other people assaulted by, you know, other medical professionals. Um, And so I've, I've been really fortunate that each time I've stepped out a little bit further, it's been okay. And so I've been sort of encouraged and felt like I can allow myself to keep doing this because it's productive. It's helping me. It's helping other people. I'm aware that not everybody has that experience or can, can do that. But I feel like in a way it's a Privilege that I have this ability to do it, and therefore I I owe it to myself and I owe it to other people to continue doing it.
0: It isn't always the case that people have safe spaces to talk about this kind of stuff, and it can be really re traumatizing, you know, to finally open your mouth up about something and totally knocked down. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's. I mean, I had, you know, I was really motivated to tell my story because of what I was watching play out with the district attorney in New York on other cases that were so parallel to my case. I almost didn't even want to talk about the assault, but I wanted to talk about, okay, we say support women, believe women, then you come forward and you're treated like it doesn't matter. And I couldn't, I couldn't handle that part of it. But I realized pretty quickly that I had to, I had to talk about all of the story to be able to talk about the issues that I, I wanted to. Um, and I was a mess. <laughs> I, mean, I was a mess for several months once I knew that the story was going to be published. And I wanted to do it, you know, to be clear, but um, I didn't know what would happen, what would come of it. The day that it was posted online, I felt immediate relief. Like, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't eaten. I could, I mean, I was not sleeping. But the day that the story went up, I was like, Let's order a pizza, have a party because it felt so different and I could immediately do all these other things uh, with my story that I couldn't do before, but I didn't even know what that would be like or what I would want to do. So it's been different, you know, each, each step of the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, there's almost nothing more empowering when you can get your story out in the way that you want to get it out. And especially to see people receive it well. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that. You know, we hadn't talked about that before, um, what the reception had been like and, you know, whether that had been difficult or contentious or.
1: No, it's been, it's been really great. You know, there's been, you know, there's always some weirdos, but um, I think because of cases like with Nasser and Tyndall at USC, there's been some high profile cases of serial sex crimes by medical professionals. I think people still, the the way the media treats it, it's still a little bit like this one odd weirdo off there. And from the people that I hear from who reach out to me now, and from my experience, I think it's more pervasive and, and present than we want to admit. And so I think it's the message is starting to get out there Um, but the reception the people who I hear from are other people who have been assaulted or in very questionable situations with their doctors that they are not even sure if it's a crime you know they don't know what to what to do (laughs) with what happened that's one of the reasons I advocate around um, Uh, Informing the public about their rights around medical boards and the responsibility and, you know, need for transparency with medical boards, because that is one option uh, For patients who believe that there has been either a crime or just not appropriate behavior or questionable behavior um, that there is another resource they can turn to if they're not comfortable going to the police, let's say It's not a perfect system, but people should be aware of the resources that are out there um, to help them, because I think there's a lot of question about what you know, what is illegal, what happened to me, what do I do, and we're just not talking enough about um, yeah. sexual assault by by doctors.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance around it too, because you know, like you said, it's like every time one of these stories comes out. People do tend to look at it as this is a one-off. This is, you know, just some odd bird. And yet you, you almost always see that they were protected by their institution. So that sort of contradicts the idea that this is just a one-off when you have, when you, when you see there's clear evidence that this institution is willing to protect someone who does these things. Yeah. So
1: why? They're only assumption that they're the only one. (laughs) And they're only in that position, to be able to do that because of their employer, their professional expertise, um, their high credentials, their reputation, like it's all a cover for this behavior. And they know that and they use that. And the institutions that employ them and enable them, and in my case and in others, there is evidence that they were alerted to this behavior and they just look away. They don't want to admit it, it's a business choice doctors are expensive investments uh they want to protect their reputation i mean any number of reasons yeah. um get really big institutions and so i think things get lost um you know there's there's any yeah. number of reasons but yes the the institutions i think people use that as a cover for their for their crimes yeah
0: yeah well that when you just said about doctors being an expensive investment. It reminds me of a few years ago one of the national investigations that was done on I guess the efficacy of medical boards around the country when it comes to misconduct by uh, do- sexual misconduct by doctors where they found that like the majority of doctors who had been accused of sexual misconduct were still practicing. And I remember the head, I think it was the head of the board in Alabama. I know it was in Alabama. I'm not totally sure about his position, but I remember his comment to the reporter was something like, he basically said, yeah, they're expensive investments. And so of course we're going to try to sort of rehab as opposed to punish. Although there's, There's no attempt at rehab whatsoever. This is a person
1: who has raped patients, but they deserve, they deserve an opportunity for rehabilitation. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's Brock Turner, you know, it's,
0: we don't want to mess up his (laughs) life.
1: It's the same mentality that I think we're bringing more attention to nationally, right. Mm -hmm. Through conversations about the way people defended or excused Kavanaugh, the way, I mean, it's the same language that we see. And unfortunately, these institutions, you know, medical licensing is, is uh, done at a state level. It's not a federal, federal level. And these institutions at state levels that are supposed to protect patients, in fact, they feel like, and you hear it through comments like that, that they're, they're actually their main responsibility is to the doctors first and offering them multiple attempts at, you know, rehabilitation, uh, sending them to retreats. You know, I read recently that there's an epidemic of mental health issues in doctors and that medical boards should not be asking them invasive questions about their medical health on their licensing because it might turn them off from reporting mental health issues. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, this person who assaulted me and had over 30,000 patient visits in his career, he clearly has some issues. Now, I don't know if questions through licensing would have addressed that, but why would you take away a question that perhaps might reveal that a person uh, is in need of help, and why would you want to put those people in front of patients? I mean, anyways, you see it come up time and again, and I do think that medical boards as the government agencies regulating people have a responsibility. It's not going to fix it all, right? The institutions are not going to fix it all. The, the board isn't, but collectively, there's like this, there's a failure on many levels to address this issue.
0: Well, I mean, you know, ostensibly, these are government agencies, but they're made up of physicians generally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there it seems like there's an inherent conflict of interest depending on who you have.
1: Very few um, boards have public members. Yeah, it's a problem.
0: Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about the work that you've done as far as transparency and medical boards because you know that's definitely something that we talk about a lot <laughs> at birth Monopoly with people complaining about you know inappropriate conduct, not necessarily sexually inappropriate but medically inappropriate, legally inappropriate in a lot of cases with people, you know, having procedures forced on them or being bullied into things, having things done without consent. What can you tell people who experienced that themselves and are wondering where to go with that?
1: Sure, so I became connected and joined a group called the Medical Board Roundtable, which is a volunteer group of advocates nationwide focused on issues around medical boards so a really dedicated group of people who uh, have either had medical malpractice um, issues that they have faced or family members have faced people in positions like i am or people who have worked for medical boards or been involved in a regulatory way but want you know see the opportunity to make improvements so i would say that i'm in a phase right now of really just trying to learn as much as i can about kind of what the landscape is there, you know, California recently was the first state to pass something called the Patients' Right to Know Act, which requires doctors who are being investigated for, it could be sexual misconduct, it could be other other issues uh, to inform their patients. So rather than just say to patients, you can look up your doctor in this database, they're actually required to proactively tell people. A similar bill was just introduced in Washington state, I hope to be able to bring a similar proposal to New York State where my uh, the crimes against me happened, so I think you know there there is more percolating out there. Um, I would encourage people to you know figure out in their state what what that office is, what the procedures are again it's not perfect in New York State. they are required to investigate any any claim or accusation that's brought to them, it takes an average of something like 300 days for them to, to do that. So you're not necessarily gonna get immediate results, but I don't want to kind of give up on that system. So I would encourage people, um, the way we might talk about Title IX on college campuses, and uh, hopefully there is a police investigation and you know a college um, investigation of a crime and accusation I think of it kind of similarly, that hopefully there's these two resources and that one might be able to do something even if the other doesn't. So again, I think it's a matter of like figuring out all the resources available to you and availing yourself of of those that you can. It's very, very difficult to actually research and know what a physician's record is. It's private, it's not public information in many states. A lot of doctors, if they're under investigation in one state, will resign before there's actually um, a judgment against them, uh, and move to another state where they'll seek licensure. So it's it's very difficult. And you think you know we live in this world of like Yelp and Amazon, and you know you get a million reviews. You ask a friend about like do they do you like your TV before you buy a new TV, whatever it is. Like we don't have that ability with uh, medical care and. Most people are patients. I mean, almost everyone's a patient at some point in your life. And it's just kind of wild that this information is not publicly available.
0: Yeah. No, and you know what else I've noticed when we're talking about doctors is that the same people who have these allegations against them often have really, really fierce and loyal uh, fans, which I find really, really interesting. And people get really upset and emotional When doctors are accused of things. So that's kind of another interesting sort of aspect to it where you don't see that if it, you know, if we were talking about like your car mechanic or like, you know, your type of TV, you know, you don't see people getting really upset that, you know, Samsung isn't as good of a brand (laughs) as Toshiba or whatever. But I see that a lot, you know, when someone kind of comes forward and, you know, there's no, there's nowhere really to come forward, right? It's just, you know, maybe they post on social media or, you know, something like that. And then you'll see them just get like, like dive bombed by people who are really fierce defendants of that, of that person. And, you yeah. know, will say, I had nothing but wonderful experiences. How dare you say this? We, Which is so um, interesting to see women do that to other women.
1: Yeah, we see that in, right? We're seeing that a lot in all aspects of our society now, people defending horrible people. And it is uh curious, right, that they're willing to step forward and actively say, well, you know, there was a woman executive at CBS, oh, I worked with, you know, I worked with Les for, for years, and he never did that to me. So I believe him. And you know, it's the kind of slut shaming. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I haven't seen anyone sort of actively defend my doctor, but people don't want to admit that someone that they were intimate with is the wrong word, but that they had presented themselves or exposed themselves to um, in a medical situation that, you know, they trusted that person. I presented to a group of medical professionals recently, and I could tell that they were listening to me, but it's hard for anyone to admit that a peer or, you know, your colleagues have create, have done this behavior. And rather than say, wow, we want to do different, what can we do? You know, people kind of get entrenched and say, well, that wasn't me, or I, you know, I didn't do that. And we don't do that. While we're saying, you know, me too, all over the place, I don't think we're really, truly at a point yet of being able to Respond to that and support people who who say that we're just not there.
0: Yeah, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Marissa. Are you confident supporting your clients in their rights? A must course for birth workers and worth one and a half contact hours towards your continuing education is my Know Your Rights Legal and Human Rights in Childbirth online course. Really understanding your clients' rights and the context for those rights is a game changer for both of you. It's not about conflict. It's about being calm and confident. You can do this. Go to bit.ly slash birth dash rights. The link is also in the show notes. Listeners get 10% off with coupon code podcast. We're back with Marissa Hochstetter, who is an advocate for victims and is now suing Columbia University and New York Presbyterian Hospital for covering up allegations of sexual misconduct by Dr. Robert Haddon for um, some 20 years, and you know, during which time she was victimized by him. Over the break, we were just sort of chatting about our kids really quickly and about taking our kids to the doctor and the kinds of things that the messages that we give our kids. And I was, yeah, I was just going to say, I really, I, I totally relate to that because i still have you know i'm in this line of work too you know and i still have these like like these entrenched beliefs that come up when i'm at the doctor when my son is when say the doctor touches him without you know asking him or explaining what he's going to do and i have to like make myself say actually um hey eric could you explain to him what you're doing first? Or Henry, you can ask him questions if you want. You know, there's like this struggle that goes on where between like, you know, I almost want to be like, no, Henry, just do what he says. Just, just, just be quiet and do what he says. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's just doing his job. Don't bother him. Don't, you know, don't ask too many questions. And it's like, it's so deeply entrenched, you know? Um, So you were just
1: saying that about, you know, the same thing with with your- Yeah, I mean, you- you find yourself as a parent. Of course, we joke as parents about like the white lies we tell, or you know, sort of that. Um, you find yourself saying things as a parent, you know, to get your kids to do something. But I because took I daughter. said so, for example, yeah. Yeah. and that's it's humorous. But then, like, you're in a medical situation with them. I my, took my one of my daughters to the dentist this morning, and you know, I'm saying, okay, you know, it might hurt, but do what what she's saying and you know, how do you have those conversations that are required and are important? And of course, we we want to trust medical professionals. But then you're suddenly saying these things. So it was interesting, even just this morning for me to think, of course, it kind of brings back my trauma a bit anytime I go to a, a doctor. And then I think about my two daughters and where I'm taking them. Uh, you know, this was the one only time that I'd ever seen a male doctor. And I certainly take them to female doctors, but, um, you find yourself at a loss for words really of how to communicate that in a way that's appropriate, but not sending a reinforcing, you know, the wrong message. And of course kids get so many conflicting messages around consent and their body. And it's, it's a, it's a challenge.
0: Yeah. So you said this is the first time you'd ever been to a male doctor. Was that intentional?
1: No, I, um, My husband and I had moved to New York and decided we wanted to get pregnant. And I had been to a couple of different offices that were took my insurance or whatever and just didn't like them. Um, And I remembered that a really good friend of mine from college had an uncle who was an OBGYN in the city. He had helped her. I knew with something that had been really difficult for her in a pregnancy. And so got his contact information and. I'm like, oh, he's at Columbia University, New York Presbyterian. These are big, you know, big hospitals. Went to the office. It was totally professional, nice office, better than the other places I had been. Um, And I even thought, you know, at first I thought, well, I'm not going to go to this guy. Maybe I'll get a recommendation for someone else in his practice. And he was very, looking back on it, I feel like he sort of used his kind of self deprecating kind of nerdy awkwardness to kind of endear you to him like he was your dad like even the first visit you know he asked me if I had trouble having orgasms and I thought god that's a weird question like I've never been asked that before I didn't come for to this visit for that reason there's no medical reason for that question but I thought that's just weird because it's this guy like my dad's age asking me And so there were a few things like that, that I think looking back, you know, he's sort of testing you, he's ingratiating himself, that's not really the right word, but he's kind of putting you at ease. Um, Grooming. And so, you know, I saw him twice, I actually only saw him once, and then was pregnant from from all the, the other visits, and then I saw him twice after. Um, I delivered the twins. So I was pregnant during most of my visits with him and twins run in my family, a lot of twins. I kind of just felt like I would have twins. So very early on, I think our first visit, maybe they were only like eight weeks or something. We saw them and I was nervous. I was scared. I didn't want to like change doctors. And I just went with it, I really was not there in a way. I kind of separated my body from the pregnancy. Like I was there for them and I wanted someone each visit and I had more visits because A, I had twins. I think there's also some question about whether or not he, there are other women in the case who feel like he uh, required them to come for additional visits that more than were medically necessary. So, you know, that's a question, but I just, every visit I went I just wanted someone to say, okay, the babies are fine. Like I, I almost separated myself from my body and it was about them. And I was so focused on that, that I feel like I overlooked other things.
0: Yeah. So I read that there were some questionable things. And then finally, like one visit, you were like, okay, that was definitely inappropriate. There's no
1: question in my mind.
0: And that was, I think, after the birth, right? That was at a postpartum visit?
1: Yeah, it was my one year um, checkup. So after the C-section, I saw him, I don't know, a couple weeks afterwards or something like that. And then I saw him a year later. And it was at that visit that I know that he licked me and I froze (laughs) like, what just happened? And I honestly don't even really remember other than him leaving the room and me just saying, okay, I'm never coming back here. So that was the time that I know something happened. Of course, then I went back through a lot of other things in my head and, you know, remembered other things that were times he probably didn't use gloves. Definitely a lot of times where there were not other people in the room, you know, overly, I'll say overly touchy breast exams, things like that. So you go back and suddenly <laughs> all these things that you probably were aware of, but um, it's honestly, it's so far outside of the realm of something that you think possible that your brain just like is not, doesn't register it. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. It really doesn't. You're like, it just, you know, and then once you kind of open up to it because you know something happened, you realize all these things happened. And then it was a while before you told your husband, right? Yeah, it was almost three years, actually. Later, So that was in the spring of 2012. And later that year in the fall, I did see some news coverage. So around that time and then over the summer, another woman did call the police. He was arrested in, in his office. He was allowed to go back to work the next day and (laughs) continued seeing patients for, I think almost two months. The police, the district attorney, his employer were aware at that point. And there are women in the lawsuit who were abused during that time period, which is anyways, totally, totally egregious. Yeah. Um, But I heard then it started to get some media coverage that fall and I at that point was like, okay, not alone, definitely aware of it. And I was really, really stressed about it. I mean, I thought, God, you know, I think of myself as someone who says something, you know, I speak up, I do these things, but I wasn't doing it in this case. And I felt like a hypocrite, you know, I started to feel really bad about myself, I was really depressed about it. And I could not reconcile like, who I thought I was with how I was acting. And I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. And so I really, I did, about another year later, I, I, I finally got to the point where I thought, okay, I have, to, I have to do something, you know, I have to speak up about this. I didn't know what that would mean or what would come of it. I went to the district attorney because that was who, whose name I had read in the paper and I knew that they had a, a case against him already. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to help I wanted to do something because so I just couldn't reconcile who I was with who I, how I thought of myself.
0: You, can you talk a little bit about the trauma aspect of all of this? Because I know it takes a lot to go from being victimized to being like the face of this giant lawsuit that's in national news And I, you know, and I read that, you know, you were having nightmares and these, you know, there are definitely these trauma symptoms happening. So how, you know, how did you get from a point of like, or, and, you know, maybe you aren't at that point, you know, maybe it's just something you deal with now. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know, I know that a lot of people who listen to this are people who have survived things Mm -hmm. and most likely haven't talked about it
1: yet. Sure. Sure. You know, part of it is a bit surreal that I i am just, I'm not stopping. I feel like I found my voice, I'm using it, but I'm also sometimes like, who am I? <laughs> like I can't, I'll do an interview or something and maybe I read the article once, but I can't go back and and, and look at it. I give a lot of credit to my therapist, so I really... You know, I went weekly, sometimes every other week, but I really needed to focus. You know, I was not being a good parent. I was not being a good wife. I was spouse. I was not being really healthy. I didn't feel good. I wasn't sleeping. I just really got to a point of like, okay, you know, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to hurt myself or my family. I would hurt my family like physically, but like, I'm not taking good care of myself and I refused to let this person win. So in the course of my therapy, you know, um, she encouraged me to write and to start writing things down. And so slowly I started doing more writing and I wrote a personal essay about my experience with the Manhattan district attorney. And that then I felt like this is like a, this is a good like op-ed, like I want to get this published. I did not say the details in it, but It kind of became a compulsion, maybe the way some of my other behavior had, and, you know, that's not going to be the reaction that everybody has, but I was like, I have to get this published, like, I have to. I worked for a year just talking to people, reaching out, like, does anybody know anybody? Like, I worked really, really hard. Then the reality of, like, okay, this is actually going to happen on BuzzFeed, that was, like, another whole thing, but... It's almost like when I have something to focus on, like I'm writing an essay or I'm doing an interview, I feel good. I I really feel like when I'm being productive, I feel good. When I'm not doing that stuff, I definitely go back to being not feeling great. I mean, I have days where I wake up and I think, oh my God, I'm a fool. Like I've told the world about what happened to me and my challenges and my kids and my like you know, I have days where I'm sad and I'm really upset and question what I'm doing. And then I'll get like a Twitter message from a woman who says, you know, you don't know me and this might be weird, but he was my doctor too. Um, And I wish I could have had more kids, but I can't deal with ever being pregnant again, you know? And I think, fuck, (laughs) like this person has ruined people's lives, has taken away opportunity and he's effectively like retired in new jersey and i can't deal with that and so somehow some way i found the motivation to tell the story and then now that i have i want to use it for the most good and so even though it's unpleasant to talk about i'm not going to stop because i've come this far You know, so if I'm going and talking with legislators or I'm talking to a medical group or something like that, I say kind of jokingly, like, there's a million other issues I'd probably like to talk to you about. Like, I'd love to talk about education or the arts or any number of other things that I care very deeply about. But this has become the thing that I'm, I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm often that person in the room that like, nobody else wants to say it. I'll say it it's a little bit of my personality. Like I'm, I'm pretty direct and I'm pretty, um, I don't take a lot of things personally, you know, I'm pretty like at work. I, I, I'm pretty direct about things. And so it's a bit of my personality, I think to, to be like that, but it's not easy, but yeah, you know, it's like a steady drip of people reaching out to me and that I think keeps me, keeps me motivated.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Like what what are some of the messages you've gotten from
1: people? Oh, I mean, so much support and encouragement. More people have come forward and joined our lawsuit. Yeah, so that's, there are definitely people who are patients of in patients of, there was another story about a doctor in California and I heard from two women there who said they had read my story and were and went forward to the LA Times about their doc their OBGYN. I hear from a lot of people who have been very badly treated by the Manhattan District Attorney, um, victims of sex crimes, not just by you know medical doctors, but handled treated very badly, very badly. You know, I try to only speak publicly about my experience and I certainly can't give anyone any kind of you know, legal advice or other, but I encourage people as much as they're comfortable to share their story publicly. And we ask a lot of survivors. We ask them to carry the weight of what happened to them, but somehow also still function, be normal in society, and to find the legal help to, you know, go through that part of it. And often, there's very little accountability for prosecutors. So if they decide not to press charges or take your case or do anything like that, the only option you have is to speak publicly. Like you have to put yourself out there to even have these conversations. I've tried to have conversations with the DA um, and they, you know, they don't have to, they don't, they don't do it. So you're left with sort of having to put yourself out there publicly.
0: I know something else that you've been working on is getting Dr. Haddon's name removed from your daughter's birth certificates. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm the most excited that um, finally after several years of trying to figure this out, um, I'm really close to a solution. So I hadn't even thought about the fact that his name was on their birth certificates and I went to register them for kindergarten and I, you know, took the forms that I'm sitting there with the registrar and I look down and I'm like, what? Why is his name there? You know, in some states, you don't have the doctor's name. It says name of attendant at delivery, Robert Haddon. And I almost threw up. I mean, I was so mad. And I thought, you know, I, I just, it's not fair to them to have this person attached to them, that, them for the rest of their lives. Like it's bad enough that I have to carry the weight of the fact that he was the first person in the entire universe to touch my children. You know, I had a C-section. He physically reached inside my body and brought them into the world. Like that's the hardest thing for me. I'll never that's really heavy. Hmm. That's really heavy. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, it's an incredible privilege that these doctors have and they just what I'm just like a physical, I'm just like a vessel. I'm just like a sex object. And you do major surgery, you take two children out of me. And then you also use my body for your gratification. Like, it's messed up. So when I saw his name on their birth certificates, I just, I was so angry. And I tried, you know, long story short, I tried through the uh, Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. I learned that it could really be anybody's name there. So if I'd had a home birth with just my husband there, it could have been his name, could have been my name. And everybody who kind of interacted with me was supportive, but there was like no precedent. And they said, unless Columbia, unless the hospital issues a new letter, uh, you'd have to take this to the state Supreme Court and have to be in order. Well, we asked Columbia and you know, they said no. Uh, That's one of the demands in our lawsuit, in fact, was that they issue letters to have new birth certificates, but they refused through informal and formal channels to acknowledge us. Well, I think Um, that, that would have been
0: possibly admitting like some culpability on their part. Sure. Right, if they had.
1: Yeah, no, they're not. I mean, I guess not surprisingly from, you know, a legal standpoint, they wouldn't do that. But I think that's where you start to see that There are these institutions, and they're not human, and they don't think about a reasonable response to things. And yeah, you know, I ended up in a position where a lawsuit is what I have to do to engage in a conversation about this. So two different lawyers tried, there were a couple years of trying to get his name off the birth certificate. I now know of 10 other women, nine other women, so 10 of us who want his name off our birth certificates. Uh, our children's birth certificates, and I reached out to a New York City council member, who's the chair of the Committee on Health, and through a series of conversations, and I'd say some creative thinking on his part, he said, you know, there has to be a way to solve this. We recognize that it's traumatic for you. And so in December last year, a bill was introduced to the city council that would allow People to request the removal of a doctor's name if they have been sanctioned by the state medical board. So I'm looking forward to speaking before the city council to share my experience and, and why this uh, bill would be important and have great meaning. I think it also again reinforces the responsibility of the medical boards in disciplining these doctors. And I'm really excited though. I mean it's um Hopefully, it's not something that lots of people need to avail themselves of, but I know there's a group of us that want this, want this change, and it really, for me, it's an example of a, a politician, of a, a person who has influence and an ability to say, okay, this is one tangible way that we can support survivors. This is something we can actually do, not just talk, but make a change that will have great meaning for people.
0: Yeah, I hope that works out.
1: Thank you. This is where like you asked me before about the trauma and talking about it. Like, again, I would love to be presenting to the New York city council about something else, but at the same time, it's an incredible opportunity. And like, I'm making a law, like the fact that we have to make a law to be able to do this is wild, but it's kind of cool. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to take this opportunity. It is really hard for me, but I'm going to get up there and I'm going to do it because it's going to make a difference. And I'm bringing attention to something that nobody wants to talk about. And so this is one way to help bring attention to it.
0: Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time. That went really fast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, um, there's a lot to talk about. And when you bring in issues of sexual assault, also parenting, you know, motherhood, parenting, um trauma like these are big subjects and every time i have a conversation with someone i learn something new i hear about other people's experiences and i might say wow that happened to like i felt that way too but i didn't know how to articulate it and i think that's one of the most it's one of the greatest things that i have felt since coming forward is joining a, a community of people who Are committed to talking about these issues as a starting point. We don't always have the answer or know what we need to do necessarily to fix it. And so much of these situations, I'm sure people you talk to, I mean, every birth is unique, every, you know, confluence of the situation, everything is really individual and specific. And there's a lot to like get at to fully understand um, what happened to you and what you can do about it. So, Um, Thank you for having a conversation with me. Thank you for having a conversation with a lot of people and, and helping, you know, bring attention to these issues. The influence of medical professionals in our lives is great and we need to be informed about what's happening when we're pregnant you know, whatever the situation is when we're seeing these people. So thank you for your work.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And if anyone listening has any follow-up questions or anything, you know, maybe they want to say to Marissa, feel free to contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com and I'll make sure that gets through. Thanks again, Marissa.
1: Thank you, it's Brave
0: And it's big. And I know that a lot of people are rooting for you.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: Hi, this is Kristen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there aren't a lot of shows like this one out there. And one big reason is it has never been my goal to get corporate or mainstream ad money. Nope, we are supported by folks who are part of the change. In fact, the show you're listening to now is made possible by Evidence-Based Birth, your go-to source for high quality, unbiased information on the latest evidence-based care practices for childbirth. We love Evidence-Based Birth for its radical approach to changing maternity care, taking the evidence out of paywalled journals and translating it right into the hands of parents, birth workers, and medical professionals so they can make change from the ground up. Like Evidence-Based Birth, you can help us keep Birth Allowed Radio an independent voice challenging a powerful status quo. Email us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com to find out how. Again, that's birthaloudradio at gmail.com.